when you've got a geek in your house, who are you going to call? The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello, 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 and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And one of your resident geeks is myself, Lee Ford. And the other one is me, Andy Beacon. Just a couple of geeks hanging out, just doing geeks. Talking stuff. nonsense. <laughs> Talking geekdom for you geeks. How are you, my friend? All good? I'm good. Uh, I've worked a lot over the past couple of days. We had yeah. yesterday, we're, we're recording on Sunday, yesterday morning, Saturday, we held the Fly Cheese Student Showcase for 2024. It's something that we've done at the cinema for the past oh, about good. five years. Uh, Fly Cheese, for those who don't know, uh, Fly Cheese Studios is a charity-funded animation studio in Sheffield that works with people with who suffer from autism to train them on how to create animations, short films, etc. Editing, putting things together, processing, post-processing, and you know the students have like I've I've seen them like when they're at work when they're at work making things because they come in occasionally to do little showcases in the cinema and like let members of the public take part and like try to make little Lego animations and stuff. Oh, that's cool. And it's a great, it's a great thing to tap into the absolute insanity that comes from the imagination of some of their students. And once they've got like enough footage from enough of their students, they book in to do a showcase with us and then work on editing it to the last minute. It's about an hour and 40 of short, short films. Some of them only literally 30 seconds. Some of them up to about five minutes. A mixture of like traditional animation, plasticine, Lego, or even just taking clips from films and redubbing them and re-editing them to tell a different story. And it's marvellous. I mean, like I said, there's, there's some seriously wacky imagination that comes from them. <laughs> and watching them, I've been working closely with Paul Brown, who's the guy who set up uh, Fly Cheese uh, over the past week, as he's been sending me like the last print through. So I've been converting it over so it'll play on the projectors. But that means that I've been watching through to make sure that it works okay. And I've been sat in a screen testing it, just chuckling to myself at how funny some of the stuff coming out is. But there's also some great like storytelling. There's one which I think it was the one that won their Best in Show award which the animation style reminded me of, you know, the old kids' programs like Crystal Tips and Alistair and Body. Oh, yeah, yeah, that very sort of animation. flat animation style, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was like a, a story of a princess in a kingdom done in that style. And I was oh. sat watching it, just feeling nostalgic for my own childhood watching it, and it deserved to get best in show because it was just so marvellously put together. It's nice. a great thing to get involved in at the cinema, but it has mean that, you know, even on my day off on Friday, I went in because I had another cut and a few more things to put into the show show list that I needed to make sure were working so I could sleep well Friday night and not be <laughs> stressing Saturday morning because there was enough to do yesterday morning. And as part of the day, um, the Lord Mayor of Sheffield opened it, showed off his, uh, his pristine scissors that they have for ribbon cutting ceremonies, which... Uh, Marvelous pair of scissors. They cut through anything. Um, but also, <laughs> that's not um, uh, that's not an ad. <laughs> We've just dropped in there, folks. Which you find these pristine, being able to cut everything scissors available at. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he told us that like they've had people who've had ribbons with like bits of wire and things like that in, and like that whenever they've done ribbon cutting ceremonies, always try to provide their own scissors, and the scissors don't go through the ribbon. So they've got these like really well engineered scissors that you keep in like a velvet case and everything. And They're bionic, I believe. Anything. 
It's perfect. Andy, I've never known you get so so infatuated by a pair of scissors. Oh, yeah. The scissors are great. Scissors are amazing. <laughs> uh, but there was also an introduction from one of the animators from Ardman, uh, Dan O'Jari, who was responsible for writing and co-directing the 2021 short film Robin Robin, which you might that. remember. It yes. got shortlisted as one of the Oscar nominations for the 2022 Oscars, and I think it was robbed because it didn't win. Um, it was my favourite that year to win the Oscar. Um, it's a great little short animation, well worth checking out. Uh, but I got a chance to geek out and meet Dan and got a photo with him, which I popped up on our, some of our socials. Um, yep, it was well great done. chatting to him. He was just he he was commenting like how lovely the cinema was, and he loves like the aesthetic that we have. We have all the artwork that's been drawn by team members, etc. And coincidentally, as he was leaving, he was asking, like, who drew all this art? I was like, oh, one of our members of staff. I don't think he's in today. He keeps it fresh. He swaps things around. And he's like, oh, it's really good. And I was like, okay, I'll see you later. And he went to take some photos of it. And as I walk back down the corridor, I see that the guy who did it, which is Stephen, Stephen Young. I know you're out there and listening. Yeah, you're a listener. And I made Stephen's day because he turned up early for work to get some of the art done. So I was like, oh, looked around. Dan was still there. I was like, Stephen, come with me now introduced him, just went, Stephen, uh, this is Dan Ajari from uh, Ardman, who was responsible for Robin Robin, and Dan, this is Stephen, who's done our artwork, and Stephen's just eyes lit up, he's like, oh, Robin Robin, that's an amazing film, oh, I really love the creator, I was just like, he's in geek heaven, so I stepped away and let them just like bond for about five to ten minutes, S- Stephen came to me afterwards once Dan had gone, just went, that's just really made my day, so I know I felt the same when I geeked out, it was great, <laughs> this is why I love my job, just a chance to see people who, like, you know of, you know their work. Getting a chance to chat to them and find out what inspired them. But the whole day for the Fly Cheese event was marvellous. It's great. We had a 100 and odd people turn up to see their showcase, the students, their families and some of their friends. And they all had a great time and it all ran smoothly. And, oh, now we can uh, look forward to setting up next year's one. I love my job. I can tell. Again, how much I love my job. I have an element of Love My Job as well. I shot a music video, which seems a long time ago, beginning of November of last year, and we completed the cut, and that should be uh, having a release, just waiting for the record company now to give a thumbs up on a release date, but so good when you get something done. And and I did something very different. Uh, it, it was pop music, which is not my usual genre. Anybody seen mm-hmm. any of my previous work? This was uh, um, this was different, and um, it had challenges with it. Challenges, it was only a very, very low budget. Um, for what I got paid on the last Def Leppard music video, it wouldn't have even covered lunch. <laughs> this one, <laughs> but it was it was it was worth it's worthwhile. It's always good to to I like doing shoot at low budget stuff because you, you've got to go. Mm. Right, I've got nothing else but my imagination, and and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But at least I've tried it, and and this worked. It, I, it, I I went down a different different style. But now, just waiting on the record company to to release it. So if you want to check it out, there are promos. Uh, the artist called Nick Major. That's Nick N I double K Major with a G M E G E R. Um, you can check out his Insta, and you'll see some clips, and you'll see some images of that. And it's a great song. It's a really good poppy song, which which deserves to be a Eurovision song, I think. That's that's the kind of vibe I get from it. So if you want to see the video, I don't think it's there in its entirety, but bits and pieces uh, leading up to its release. And I had some interesting news uh, about the film project. I'm now working with a director 
on my script and things are in film in the film business world edging very very slowly I had some fantastic feedback from the production company uh, when i can tell you if i can tell you more because you know you can't get too excited about these things and until it's made and um it's a there's a long way to go but just now i'm working with a director on it who's got a track record which always helps and uh, it's, it's turning out to be a very, very fruitful relationship so far. I think it's safe to say that if any news develops on that and can become public knowledge, we will be the exclusive <laughs> yeah, get, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> giant freaking robots. I'm, I'm, you know, I've been in touch, you know, what they're offering me. They don't get in touch <laughs> with anyone. They just write names on a board and throw a dart and cobble stories together. They don't <laughs> research. That's just a guy in a basement tapping on his keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> and if anyone from Giant Free of King Robot is listening to me, get out of your basement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we started a war, and well, we've uh, we've been having discussions this week about where we can take the show as well. Some interesting conversations, which hopefully will come to fruition, and we can tell you about it at some point. But let's not dwell on the probable. Let's talk about the social challenge because we set you a social challenge about animation in light of the release of A Boy and a Heron which looks absolutely beautiful. We asked you, what is your favorite animated film? And Andy, what do we know? Yeah, we've had, a, we've had some great suggestions. We've had Fantastic. some great suggestions. Over on Twitter, um, Halfling Sarah posted a clip from Spirit, like a gift from Spirited Away. And boy, that's a beautiful film. I can rewatch that multiple absolutely, times. absolutely uh, beautiful. It's always a great choice. And second choice, um, well, it's uh, it looks like a SpongeBob SquarePants movie, and I've I've not quite got that connection with SpongeBob SquarePants. I did no, enjoy the films, but both of the films are things that I watched, I enjoyed, I chuckled. I probably won't watch again, but I get that I wasn't the era that grew with SpongeBob SquarePants, so it never cre- really resonated with me. At Chuckle Monkey, Andrew Make, Perfect Blue. I've not seen Perfect Blue. No, for I don't ages. know that one. It's from nineteen ninety seven. But directed by Satoshi Kon, uh, oh, loosely based on the novel Perfect Blue. Yeah, it's a psychological horror anime. And oh, I, I remember watching, because during the 90s, like after Akira came along, I just latched onto any animes that came out. And so Perfect Blue was one of the ones that I watched. I was impressed with, but I've never gone back to. So uh, that's reminded me now that I now need to go back to Perfect Blue and remind myself of what it was about that that I loved. So uh, this one, again, we've said this before that the, the bad thing about doing these questions of the week is I start adding more and more things <laughs> onto the watch list or deep dive list as a result. But in this case, I'll, I'm quite forgiving because I remember really, really liking the, the anime style of it, the look, the themes. And it was a darker anime than what most of the other ones at the time were, which made it stand out. Through Spotify, Kate Young, who was really Stephen Young in disguise, he logged in, <laughs> he, he he keeps forgetting that he logs in under his wife's account every every now and then and forgets to log over. Unless, to unless this is his wife. No, he told me this week. Oh, it's, well, it okay. A... <laughs> it took away all the sense of mystery then. Yeah. Uh, so in our house, it's a real mix. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one which a lot of people like regularly like watch every year, particularly either Halloween or Christmas or both. Uh, Sword in the Stone. Mitchell's Ooh, versus yeah. the Machines. Yeah, I love that. Wallace and Gromit. I think he just put he just put Wallace and Gromit. He's not yeah. said which one in particular. Don't matter, does I it really? Because they're all great. Paranorman, Paranorman. Oh, you know, I've not seen that. That's, that's going on the deep dive list. I, need I to see love them. Paranorman. 
American Tale, Spirited Away, so many faves. And I know from talking to Stephen on multiple times, and like like I said in the intro when he got a chance to see Dan Ajari, he geeked out. He loves animations. He loves stop motion, hand drawn, CGI. He's he loves the creation creativity that comes for it so i'm sure if he had enough space he would have just listed out every animated movie that's ever been made at this point but that's a great list mitchell's versus machines is getting a rewatch from me um in the coming we weeks gushed first. over that when it came out didn't we i've already seen it like three times and each time i've spotted something else in the background that i didn't spot the first time around because it's just an explosion of animated ideas and all of them just lending well to the chaotic energy through the whole film absolutely love that film uh, Sword in the Stone, got a lot of love for. Got yeah. a lot of love for. But it's a nice tap into Arthurian legend. And you know what? You know what we're like with Arthurian legend over here? We love it. Over on the old Facebook, my mumsy said The Little Mermaid. If a film contains water and swimming, she loves it, which is why she also likes live action films like Waterworld and Shape of Water, etc. But The Little Mermaid, I, I've never had I've never had the love for the animated version of Little Mermaid. I don't know. It just, I think, again, I just didn't resonate with it when it came out. For me, when it comes to Disney, it's Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast is my rewatchable one of the uh, classic Disney. Classic Disney is a good one. Um, Fantasia, which I remember being awestruck by seeing as a kid. I got that on my list as well. It, it's the meld of like music and imagination in Fantasia that makes it. Bambi. Bambi still blows me away, as it did Bambi's <laughs> mother. But moving on. <laughs> I was I was just ready to jump in with that one. <laughs> um, Helen Blair said, the ones they have on repeat at home at the moment are Encanto, Moana, Frozen 1 and 2 and Lion King. Helen's got a young one. Uh, my little niece is obviously at that age now that they're just uh, basically the TV is controlled by the young one. <laughs> Helen herself is happy with Encanto and Moana and the others she's getting fed up with. The joys of a toddler. I would also add Tangled to one of my favourite lists and also Aladdin. Uh, and yes, she has to point out that they are a Disney-loving household. Uh, Lindsay Story loves the Shrek films, especially the second. Yeah, the sec- the Shrek franchise yeah. is one of them where the second is better than the first. Oh, you think so? I still, I've got a lot of love for the first one. After that, my interest sort of drifted. They had their moments. You know what? As regards the Shrek universe, the first Puss in Boots film, yeah, uh, Lindsay's got the Puss in Boots films on there as well. Yeah, I mean, the first Puss in Boots film was great. I thought that the more recent one was even better. It upped the ante on the animation style at the same time as really yeah. telling a good story. Uh, Coco is one of my faves, along with the Aristocats. Yeah, Aristocats, got to love that. Got to love a bit of a, everybody wants to be a cat. Uh, the Black Cauldron. They, apparently they do. <laughs> All-time favourite Disney film is Lady and the Tramp as I'm not a princess kind of gal. Also enjoyed The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Returns, the animated um, entry into the, well, the DC stable of marvellous films that they make animated but can't quite tap into live action. Uh, Mask of the Phantasm, <laughs> adding that to the list. Yes. Um, Owen Cooper says, absolutely loves Batman Under the Red Hood. When I was younger, I used to watch the next Avengers constantly. Megamind is infinitely superior to Despicable Me. And yes, I yes, agree, agree entirely. Megamind was so much better than Despicable Me. Akira is definitely up there too. Needs yep, to start yep. watching Ghibli films. They've never actually seen any of the Ghibli films. Always wanted to see Spirited Away. The Ghibli films for me are a mixed bag. I think that some of them are completely overrated. The animation's still charming, but it, 
they don't really go anywhere. But Spirited Away is one that I will always go back to because I think it's 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 Alice in Wonderland done from a like Japanese studio perspective. It's that kind of like bizarre world setting. And it's one of them that the first time you watch Spirited Away, you will come away going, I've no idea what I've just watched. And then when yeah, you watch yeah, it again, you start to connect with it more. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful story and instantly rewatchable. So that's that's all the ones that we got from our lovely people out there. Um, I also want to throw in, I mean, you already said Fantasia. I'll also throw in Watership Down is one that I go back to very frequently. Yeah. Lord of the Rings, the Ralph Bakshi animated version. Always a shame there was never a part two. Yes, very disappointing. Finding Nemo is my favourite of the Pixar outings. Uh, I just connect with that on so many levels. It always reduces me to tears. And uh, even though it's been said before, Akira, Akira was the one that kick-started the fascination in the West with anime. And even though I think that Wings of the Honey Anime is a much better film, and that is always going to be my favourite go-to anime film, Akira is immensely rewatchable. And so that just about pips Honey, I'm going to say. I'm going to throw in Toy Story 3 because it's not only great animation, but pitch perfect storytelling. Yellow Submarine. I can go back and watch Yellow Submarine with the Beatles so many times. Have you ever seen the triplets of Belleville? I've not, no. Um, it was one of the Oscar-nominated films that I missed out on that I have got on my short list and I need to get around to watching it. Fantastic and very, very clever. Isle of Dogs. Love Isle of yeah, Dogs. Such a great film. Why Why did I not think of any Wes Anderson? I know. I know <laughs> there's, there's plenty to go out there. And it, it's a recent edition, uh, Apollo 10 and a half. Oh, yeah. I remember Richard like, Linklater. We, we were charmed by Linklater's look at life around the event, you know, life and imagination of a young coming of age story set around the space race. Marvellous. I, I could go on. I could absolutely name so many more. But I'm not, because I'm going to set this week's question. So I've just finished Echo, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, I watched the last Echo. episode yesterday. There was an Echo in here. Echo, go, go, go. <laughs> and I saw the trailer for the Dev Patel action movie Monkey Man this week. I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. that. So action sequences. Action sequences that have just blown you away. Whether it's the choreography whether it's the brutal realism, the stylized nature of them. There are so many great action sequences. They might be from an old movie. They might be up to date with John Wick 4. What do you think is the outstanding leader when it comes to that kind of a scene? Let us know right here at the pod by doing simply this. Uh, Head over to social platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, and Blue Sky. And the question we posted out there, reply to there, engage with us, and discuss. Or you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or if you're listening on Spotify, the question of the week will be in the show notes. Answer it through Spotify. I can see the Matrix coming up quite frequently. Yeah, Matrix. Yeah, as soon as I started asking the question, I was going, ooh, I that would be a good... Oh, I forgot about that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, dazzle us with your favourite action scene. So, what have we got for you on this week's Film File? Well, we have reviews of... Uh, Open at cinemas this past week, The Colour Purple. The musical. Well, they're avoiding saying it's a musical in all the promotions, so oh, let's yeah, avoid I saying it's a musical. I noticed that, but I thought... Color. 
I thought it was our <laughs> our responsibility to point out that it is a musical. So I'll surprise people by singing my review. I'm not going to sing my review. <laughs> Please don't. Uh, <laughs> well, not that you've got a bad voice. Like, come on. I'm not being rude. And because it was quite a quiet week over at cinemas, we also are checking out two TV shows that land that are very, well, either connected to cinema or cinematic in style. Masses of the Air that landed on Apple. We've both seen the start of that. And I'm also going to be talking about the Sexy Beast TV series that landed on Paramount Plus this week. We have a deep dive into one of Andy's favourite films, so beware, I might be coming out gunning for this one, Smokey and the Bandit. But before any of that, we've got the news and we've got the box office. Still quiet out there, I'm guessing, Andy, because January is usually the season to put out uh, films that need sneaking into the cinema so they can be said to have a theatrical run or films of a should we say a higher palette to gain oscar noms what have we got what's happening <laughs> well you know that things are broken at the box office and the kind of like business that it's getting when you see jason statham post out thank you for making beekeeper the number one worldwide film for two weeks running beekeeper has been the number <laughs> one film internationally for two weeks running that's what state of the what's world we're in. This needs to change. Uh, but let's take a look at what this weekend has actually brought us. So over the water in the US, Mean Girls is at the top spot. 6.9 million added to his total. Beekeeper, second place. 6.7 million added to his total. Wonka in third place, 5.66 million. It's had a great run in the US. It's up to 194 million over there. Migration, 4.89 million to take fourth place. Anyone but you, fifth place, 4.6 million. Here in the UK, Mean Girls keeps the top spot, taking another 1.5 million. All of Us Strangers with 1.2 million in second place. Wonka in third place with 1.04 million. Anyone but you in fourth with 817,000. And Poor Things in fifth place with 690,000. As mentioned, Beekeeper Worldwide has been doing really good, keeping the top spot with all the worldwide figures due to international territories that it got released in. But the biggest surprise this week is that Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is now approaching the break-even point. It's up to 412 million worldwide, which for a film that struggled out the gate, it's made it back and become one of the most successful DC films of the past few years. So it's pretty much same old, same old at the box office at the moment. Uh, there's not a lot of surprises. It's still lower interest films that aren't really generating the numbers. So it's the higher interest, prof high profile ones like Mean Girls and like The Beekeeper that are sustaining a good run. Uh, it doesn't mean that those films that aren't making the business aren't good because most of them are absolutely fantastic, but they're a much more limited audience. So moving into the news. Yes. What have we got? Well, a quick update on the Paramount situation. Now, you'll know from previous weeks that we've been discussing how Paramount is pretty much up for sale. Initially, it looked like they were going to merge with Warner Brother Discovery, but then that turned into the going up for bidding because it looked like WBD hadn't put in enough of a bid. Well, financer David Ellison has now reportedly made a preliminary offer to buy the holding company of the Redstone family, which includes Paramount, according to Bloomberg. Doing so would give Ellison the ability to take control of Paramount Global. And he's reportedly already had discussions with Paramount about merging his Skydance media into a single larger media company. Now, Skydance are not amazingly huge like Warner Bros. Discovery, etc. But kind of prolific with their output, aren't they? I mean, 
Star Trek you'll have seen everywhere. Yeah they're, yeah, they're all over the place, but they're a smaller production. So that stops all the people saying, oh, well, you know, it's it, it's we've we seen the criticism when it was going to be Warner Brothers and Paramount. It's like, well, that's just ridiculous. It's two industry giants forming together. And, you know, we've already got that problem with Disney and Fox being one, et cetera. This is kind of different because it feels like it should be a more natural fit uh, to get them into a single larger company. Apparently, both sides have hired advisors and are currently exchanging financial information. Um, National Amusements Incorporated currently controls 77% of Paramount's voting stock. If this goes through, what it means for the future of the Paramount Plus streaming service is uncertain because that's where they've been losing a huge chunk of their money. But as any news comes through on this, we will update you. Uh, We're keeping an eye on this one closely because it's a very interesting thing because Paramount have some marvellous IP. They've got Star Trek. They've got Mission Impossible. They've got Top Gun Maverick. They've got huge franchises. But the floundering as a company, all because they took that dip into streaming, which we we said a couple of years ago, we did. This is going to break companies, and even now we know that Amazon is starting going to start introducing adverts into their paid subscription. Netflix have already been doing that. Everyone's starting to feel the pinch of the streaming wars, and Paramount looks like they're going to be the quickest to fall by the wayside at this rate. We did speak about this and we said that there would be casualties along the way because it's not a sustainable model even disney where everybody was over disney plus are struggling due to having a, a streaming services and audiences become very savvy knowing that they are paying out however much it is to go to the cinema across the world and if they wait on if they're already a subscriber they can catch that movie there and we saw that with marvels and we saw that with wish and yeah. it's an ongoing issue. And uh, eventually, those models are going to have to change. But anyway, yeah. told you that right here first. In, in other news, I'm going to give you some casting news. And what a cast. Aubrey Plaza, Margaret Qualley, who is the daughter of Andy McDowell, and former Captain America, Chris Evans, are starring in Ethan Cohen's next film, Honey Don't. Don't know much about it at this point, but w- what we do know, it's going to be a comedy. In the same vein as the road trip movie Crime Caper Drive Away Dolls, which is also starring Quali and Ethan Cohen. So always interested in anything by any of the Cohens. And this is kicking off right away. And Drive Away Dolls lands in the US on the 23rd of February and will be in UK cinemas on the 15th of March. That's something to look forward to. I always look forward to a Cohen film. I'm looking forward to getting back together, getting the band back together. Yeah. Speaking of putting the band back together, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are teaming up for a crime thriller called Animals. Now, they're not going to be both on screen together. Affleck is going to direct, and Damon is going to be the star. The project was penned by Connor McIntyre and Billy Ray, and Netflix will be releasing it. And it focuses on a kidnapping. Plot details specifics, however, are under wraps. These two work together. They were known to just be alongside each other in the early parts of their careers. And then for two decades, they didn't work together until uh, 2021's Last Duel from Ridley Scott, which they both had roles in and co-wrote. And they also teamed up in uh, last year in which they both starred and Affleck directed. So this partnership, it looks like it's it's started up again. And I'm happy to see this partnership because I think the two of them work so well together. Yeah, It's the friendship that shines through. Uh, they've, they've been lifelong friends, started their career together. And and I think that kind of trust in each other always proves to be good work. I, I like seeing them back together in air, which is what we saw about a year ago. I can't believe that. Mm, time flies, doesn't it? Over at Marvel, 
Marvel news. Now, let's start with the Spider-Man rumours. Okay. We had a Spider-Man rumour last week, so we've got another one for this week. There's been rumours that there's a bit of a an argument going on between Marvel Studios and Sony over what the tone of the next Spider-Man film would be. Now, on the good side, this means that, yes, there is another Spider-Man film going to be going into production. However, they're kind of bashing heads. This comes from Daniel RPK uh, via Spider-Man News, who reported that Marvel Studios chief Kevin Feige and star Tom Holland allegedly want a more grounded story for the next film, after all the multiverse shenanigans that have been going on. Uh, the scooper also indicates that there's also been discussions about bringing D'Onofrio's Kingpin into the new film. But Sony want to go the opposite way, because obviously Sony have seen success with their animated Spider-Verse yeah. projects, and so they want to go that route. So they want to bring back Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield again for the no, bigger multiverse spectacle. Once. No. No, I'm, just, I'm saying it now. No. All of this talk comes ahead of the release of Madam Web in two weeks, which is currently being um, expected to open worse than Morbius did. Worse than Morbius. That means minus one person goes to see it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've still not seen it, and I'm not, not bothered. Noticed it had landed on Netflix and not bothered about Morbius at all. I, I'm with you. I think that they should go. That They should listen to Feige. Feige knows what he's talking about. And go for the more grounded route. We've already had Spider-Man like doing worldwide adventures. We've had him doing like cosmic adventures. We've seen all that. Let's do a grounded New York set, simple story. Rather than throwing in cameos, cameos, cameos from previous projects again. Because that's just box ticking. It's just yeah. fanboy box ticking. I think it's worse than that. It's it's presuming that it's fanboy ticking. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, we, we enjoyed um, No Way Home. We had a lot of fun with it. But it's one of those films that on reflection, you go, it's very staged, wasn't it? It was just bringing in, like, here's Tobey Maguire. Yay, let's all cheer. There, there was no real, no real natural flow to it when you look back on it. And it's a film that on my repeated viewing, I kind of lost some love for. Right. No, I get it. I get that. So let's just focus on one Spider-Man. We, if we want to see multiple Spider-Men, We've got another Spider-Verse animated movie coming out eventually. You know, that taps into it well, and it can have chaotic fun with it without it being ridiculously high budget. If they want to have that same level of chaotic fun, how much are they going to have to pay all the stars to reprise all their roles? Let's not go down that road. Don't get me wrong. I'd, I'd love to see Andrew Garfield back doing his own solo Spider-Man projects. I'd love to see him used properly. I just don't want it to just be cameos. Yeah. Anyway, on other Marvel news, Thunderbolts. Top Gun Maverick actor Lewis Pullman has reportedly emerged as the top choice for the key role in the soon-to-be-put-before-the-camera Thunderbolts movie. Um, he's the son of Bill Pullman. He's said to have had an offer for the role that was recently vac vacated by Stephen Ewan earlier this month, which is expected to be the character of Sentry. I'm talking, talking of, uh, of Pullman, where's the Salem's Lot movie? Because he was a star of that. <laughs> I'm going to try and get this in every week. Where was the Salem's Lot movie? Um, it's somewhere out there. It I, is. I, buried in soft beat. We still don't know anything that's happening with that. It's it, It's been finished. It's just Two been years. pulled off every schedule. It's going to go straight to streaming at some point. It's like they're embarrassed about it. And that has got me worried because we were both quite looking forward to it. We were. And other Marvel news is the Fantastic Four potential casting is imminent. And apparently, and, and you, a lot of sites have posted this as a mm. negative, but another writer's been brought on. 
the disaster artist and Fault in Our Stars writers Michael Weber and Scott Neustadter have been brought on to work on Josh Friedman's script before filming starts. Allegedly, the filming date has been pushed back from, I think it was next month, wasn't it? Or late next month into Q3, which is sort of July, September. But if they're making the film better by working on the script, then that never worries me because you should you should go into these things with an absolutely perfect airtight script rather than trying to fix it as you go along, which I know worked for, for Marvel with Iron Man yeah. as there was never a set script and writers dropped in right, left and centre to try and make it work. And, and yes, it did. But get it right before you start shooting seems to be a good watchword. So it might not be the negative that everyone seems to think. Yeah, I mean, everyone who's reporting on this negatively is clearly missing a few factors. First of all, Beagie has finally got the reins completely again to all the projects because he kind of lost control because of Chapek's reign of let's make 400 different things each year and Figi couldn't watch over them all. Now that it's slowed down, he's looking in detail everything and we know the story of like the daredevil that was looked over the episodes that were like completed were looked at and went this isn't working it needs to be rejigged and that got a rejig which is looking like it's going to be a good solid rejig because we're even getting reports that the punishers back in it so yes i think it's a mixture of that that figi's now back in control and had a chance to look in detail and go right this needs to fit like this and we also know that we're going to be losing kang because of a uh, the outcome of the case against Jonathan Majors, or there's going to be a recasting. So they're going to have to tailor the script again to a new direction. And there's probably some elements of Kang within here that have had to be removed and replaced more than likely with Doom. We don't know at this point in time because we don't know what avenue they're going down with the Fantastic Four movie. Let's just trust in Feige. Now that he's got control over everything again, let's just trust that he can tell a great story and that they brought in these extra writers to make sure that it's the best story that can be. And talking of uh, Daredevil Born Again, there's been some set videos and shots this week, seeing the gang all back together, Matt Murdock, Karen Page and Foggy Nelson. And it made my heart warm. Yes, it did. Yeah. Casting wise and uh, <laughs> slogan for T-shirt, pinch of salt corner because nothing is officially confirmed. But it's expected that... Um, there's going to be announcements pretty soon on who's playing it. And to date, only one actor has been reported on as being likely to be signed on, and that's Pedro Pascal as Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic. The hottest tipped rumours indicate Vanessa Kirby for Sue Storm, The Invisible Woman, Joseph Quinn for Johnny Storm, Human Torch, and Eben Boss Bacharach being Ben Grimm, The Thing, Eben Boss Bacharach. Perfect. Perfect. If that comes through, perfect. Other roles that were rumoured in recent months were Javier Bardem as Galactus and the Taylor Joy as the Silver Surfer, um, which obviously upset a lot of uh, basement dwellers out there because how dare they, they have a female surfer like they've had in the comics. We'll know when it gets officially confirmed, but in the moment, keep, even though those names are marvellous choices and they will be a great lineup for the four, let's just keep it all under a heavy dollop of salt. And, and while we've got some salt ready to throw, Rumours are with the Thunderbolts is that Rachel Weiss and Lawrence Fishburne, Melina Vostokov and Bill Foster are rumoured to return for that. But nothing definite at this point. Over at DC, we're close, apparently, to finding out who's going to be portraying Supergirl. 
yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I've uh, I've read the book that it's based on, and, and what an interesting and unique Tom way, Kings. girl, uh, woman of tomorrow. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting way of portraying the character in a completely different light, uh, and that makes her more than just a, a female Superman. Really, casting wise, it looks like it's down to two people now that they're picking from: Millie Alcock, best known for her work in the Game of Thrones spin-off House of the Dragon as uh, Princess Rihanna Targaryen, and on the other side, there's Meg Donnelly, star of the CW's The Winchesters and Disney Channel's musical franchise Zombies. Uh, Donnelly also currently voices Supergirl in recent and current DC animated movies. Uh, DC studio bosses James Gunn and Peter Safran were reportedly present at the screen tests for the role, which is expected to make a brief appearance in Gunn's Superman legacy ahead of her getting her own film, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. And I'm very excited. And sticking with supers, remember the J.J. Abrams Superman film? Yes, I remember J.J. being brought in to basically do whatever he wanted with uh, over at uh, Warner's because he was J.J. Abrahams and was going to release a slew of DC-related projects, including uh, a Constantine reboot, and then it all went very quiet. Yep. Well, whilst James Gunn over the past few months has only really been touching around his own Superman legacy whenever he's been on social media, this past week he's touched upon other projects that are potentially going to go into development. And he gave us an update on threads regarding the J.J. Abrams-produced untitled Superman movie. And this was the one that was going to be having Taneshi Coates as writer, and it was going to feature a black Superman. And apparently, it's still very much alive, and it will be considered as an Elseworlds project. And there's been plenty of speculation that it being scrapped. So this is the first time that someone's turned around, and the person who's turned around and said that it's not scrapped is James Gunn. So let's trust what he's saying there. So it looks like we might have multiple Superman projects, despite the fact that everyone expected it to not be. Uh, also, the fact that we're going to get multiple Batman projects. I thought it was interesting where, because he's very open on social media, uh, with somebody asked him, why isn't Batman in Superman Legacy? To which his answer was, because he's not in the script. <laughs> very direct. <laughs> A little bit of casting news. Coleman Domingo has been signed to play Patriot Joe Jackson in the Michael Jackson biopic, which we mentioned just a couple of weeks ago. And also, Coleman Domingo has signed on for another role, which Ooh, he's that? set to play Nat King Cole in a movie musical from a script that he co-wrote. I could see that. Which he'll also be making his feature directing debut on this project. So Coleman Domingo Ooh, is, is really, really becoming a big name at this point in time. He's been working on this project on the quiet for the past few years. It's not clear at this point in time what period or events in Cole's life are going to be focused on. But, you know, anyone who knows who Nat King Cole was, one of the most influential music musicians of the 20th century, over 100 chart-topping songs and sold over 50 million records. I'm going to jump into TV. I'm a big fan. Uh, despite what everybody said, I enjoyed the second season and I thought it, they did something different. But apparently with season three of Lee Child's Jack Reacher series, they are going to go back to him being a guy who turns up in a town. And this is one of the most popular novels. They're adapting Persuader, which is the seventh novel in the series, in which Reacher must go undercover to rescue an informant held by a haunting foe from his past. Love the Reacher series. Knives Out 3 is apparently going to be going into filming later this year, with Daniel Craig returning in the lead as Benoit Blanc in a feature which is again going to be written and directed by Ryan Johnson. 
Uh, it's yet to be titled, and we're yet to know exactly what kind of mystery he's going to be looking into, but it's likely that it'll debut on Netflix sometime in 2025. Yep, they've got the deal. They're going to see it first. The two-part adaptation of the stage musical Wicked has now wrapped shooting, which was confirmed by a social media post from Ariana Grande, who stars as Glinda, the good witch, in the film, alongside Cynthia Erivo as El Faba. Part one is set to release in November this year, and I'm excited. I love Wicked. Uh, with part two following next November. Talking of wrapping shooting, Deadpool 3 has wrapped, and Ryan Reynolds, because he's Ryan Reynolds, shared an emotional message to fans. Uh, posting a picture of him in costume, well, it was his crotch. Uh, Reynolds thanked the cast and crew, including uh, Sean Levy, for battling wind, rain, strikes, and Hugh Jackman, because, of course, he had to take a crack. Jackman. On an ongoing thread of casting news that we've had for the past four weeks, How to Train Your Dragon live action now has Julian Dennison, Gabrielle Howell, Bronwyn James and Harry Trevaldoin all playing the parts of Fishlegs, Snotlout, Roughnut and Toughnut respectively in this new version. I think they pretty much lined up all the cast now so that's ready to go. One film that we mentioned a few times that we're both looking forward to, it's now getting even closer as Henry Cavill has confirmed this week whilst promoting Argyle that he is ready to start the training in earnest for Highlander. It'll be a very long training process. I'm very excited to get into it. There's only so much I can tell you at the moment. I want to keep everything under wraps for as long as possible. So it's getting closer. It's getting closer. We're going to see Stahelski directing Cavill in a kilt. You can't wait, can you? You you really, really, really. I'm so excited. It's a, it's a property and an IP that has so much potential that has never really been tapped into to the effect that it should be. Fingers crossed, Stahelski's as much as a fan as I am and will do the right thing with it. And I've, I've got confidence. Uh, Superman Legacy has now got the British lenser Henry Braham set as cinematographer. Oh, they've worked together before, haven't they? He and Gunn. Suicide Squad and Guardians of the Galaxy sequels. So they work together. They get great work when they're working together. So it's not really the kind of news that makes you go, oh, really? It's the kind of news that goes, oh, yeah, of course. And Gillian Anderson has signed on to join the cast of the third Tron film, Tron Ares, for Disney. Character details are unknown, as are quite a lot of details about this film unknown. All that we know is that Jared Leto is going to be playing a being from within the mainframe who comes into the real world, because of course he is. Because it's Jared Leto. Yeah. So there have been some substantial trailer drops. Uh, probably the biggest is Roadhouse, which is a remake of the 1989 favourite that starred Patrick Swayze. It's a simple concept. What if a really cool guy that's awesome and he's good at hitting people works in a roadhouse? And this time it's directed by Doug Lyman and stars Jake Gyllenhaal. But I want to point out, the film goes straight to Prime Video on the 21st of March. And mm. director Lyman isn't happy. No. He's so unhappy that he's boycotting the world premiere of the film. In his words, we made Roadhouse a smash hit. And Amazon's words, not mine, by the way. Roadhouse tested higher than my biggest box office hit, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It tested higher than The Bourne Identity, which spawned four sequels. I'm told the press response has been Amazon's best since they bought MGM. I'm not opposed to streaming movies. I made one of Amazon's first original movies for streaming and during the pandemic sold a streaming movie to Warner, Warner Brothers. I'm currently making instigators for Apple, but I am opposed to Amazon gutting MGM and its theatrical business. Amazon asked me and the film community to trust them 
and their public statements about supporting cinemas. And then they've turned around and they're using Roadhouse to sell plumbing fixtures. And I think it's the nail on the head. I mean, this project for Roadhouse started as an MGM film and then Amazon bought out MGM. MGM, it was planning it for a big screen outing. Amazon have basically just gone, ah, we need something to keep people subscribing to our streaming service. Let's use a high-profile movie that's getting really good responses and make it an exclusive for the streaming channel. That's not the film that Lyman was making. And I don't blame him for kicking back on this one. Trailers that have landed this week are for Netflix's Avatar The Last Airbender, which I don't know much about. The, The kiddo knows it, and he says it looks closer to what? avatar is yeah it's looking quite faithful to the last airbender anime and manga which the the previous um, american outing version was nowhere near m night Shyamalan's biggest disappointment of all time i'm interested in it i think it looks uh i think it looks quite good if it can tap into what the anime did and i've not watched all the anime because boy there's so many episodes (laughs) typical anime it's like with one piece Boy, too many episodes for me to even tackle that. Um, But One Piece is a great example because I've watched the live action series of One Piece and it's so much fun. And I hear from fans of the anime that it's actually pretty faithful and pretty much captures every aspect. So this is one thing that Netflix are doing right. The trailer dropped for Patricia Highsmith's sociopathic con man Ripley starring Andrew Scott. And boy, did it look really, really cool. I mean, Andrew Scott's just perfect for that kind of role. Genius casting. Absolutely spot on that demonstrates who that character is, the way I recognised him from having read the book. Looking forward to that one. And then my last bit of news for this week, and this is a film that I really loved. I I don't know if you can consider it a classic, but I've got a a lot of time for The Book of Eli, which starred... Denzel Washington was a post-apocalyptic thriller. It did have religious overtones, but there was something very, very smart and very clever. However, now it seems there is a prequel series in the works, and John Boyega is going to be playing an earlier version of the character that Washington played. Don't know much about it. Reports that the film, uh, the film's writer Gary Witter has put together the new project alongside the Hughes brothers who directed it for Alcon Entertainment, and the story takes place 30 years after the nuclear catastrophe that caused the end of the world and resolves around Eli, a nomad who fights his way across a ravaged post-apocalyptic America while protecting a sacred book. Last bit of news. Obviously, this week, the Oscars shortlist was narrowed down and we now know what the official nominations are for the 96th Academy Awards, uh, which is going to be hosted in early March. And uh, now the time has started for me to tick off what I've already seen and start tracking down everything that I've not and I've done well so far. Let's be honest, Andy. There's not many huge surprises apart from the big controversial one, which we'll get to. Oppenheimer is leading the pack with 13 nominations. Poor Things gets 11 nominations. Killers of the Flower Moon gets 10 Barbie has eight, Maestro has seven, Anatomy of a Fall has six, and Zone of Interest, um, The Holdovers, and American Fiction all have five nominations each. Uh, We're seeing pretty much the same kind of patterns as what we've seen with previous awards. We won't go into too much detail on what's been nominated in all the awards, but I think the controversy needs to be touched on. Yes. Snub-wise, and it's been making all the news this week, is the lack of Margot Robbie for actress and Greta Gerwig for directing Barbie. And also, 
in the animation category, TMNT Mutant Mayhem is absent. And Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse only scored one nomination overall. But the biggest one is obviously the Barbie snubs. Now, are they snubs? Well, let's point out that Ryan Gosling as being nominated for actor in a supporting role and actress in a supporting role for America Ferrara, again, for Barbie, as well as adapted screenplay. I've seen people saying that like, that it's absolutely disgraceful that Ryan Gosling has been nominated over Margot Robbie. It's like different categories. I'm not sure Margot Robbie can be in Best Actor. Yes. By saying that like, it's a snub, is kind of dismissive towards Lily Gladstone, who's been who's in Best Actress, Sandra Huller from Anatomy of Fall, who gave a fantastic performance, Carrie Mulligan from Maestro, who is probably the strength of that film, Emma Stone for Poor Things, who, despite the fact I didn't like the film overall, I had nothing but, but praise for her performance and how she represented that character, and Annette Bening in Nyad. Are you saying that they are lesser people? This is the thing, is... And the best picture, Barbie is within the best picture because the best picture lineup is American Fiction, Anatomy of Fall, Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Poor Things, Zone of Interest. We know that the best picture category expanded to 10 in the past decade, but the other categories still have only a maximum of five. So somewhere within there, there's five films that won't get the, the nominations for the lead stars or the director. That's all that's happened here. There's more people to more films to choose from in the best picture, but not enough in the best director, best actress, best actor. What do you want them to do? Do you want it to be like 10 different people for best director as well? You know, should Justin Triette for Anatomy of a Fall not be recognised? Should Martin Scorsese not be recognised? Christopher Nolan, Yorgos Lanthimos, Jonathan Glazer, none of them are bad filmmakers. And I would this like is to see that I... Gerwig. It, it in that directing yeah. category more so than for Margot Robbie. It was a great performance. I don't think it was an Oscar-worthy performance. It was a fantastic no. performance. Uh, I'm not saying that it wasn't good in any way before people start slamming their <laughs> keyboards against the wall, but I don't think it was an Oscar-worthy performance. What I do think Greta Gerwig's was an, uh, an Oscar-worthy director, because I think she took uh, a project and did something incredibly unique with it. But again, who would you... Who would you drop? Would you would you drop Martin yeah. Scorsese? You know, um, it becomes subjective after a while. You get it every year, and regardless of what, if Barbie was in the Best Director for Greg Gerwig, you know, say for example, Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest was taken out, you'd get the kickback from the Glazer fans going, "Well, that's ridiculous because Zone of Interest is scored fantastically." Blah, blah, blah. Not everyone's always going to be happy. It's not a stab at Gerwig herself. It's not, a, you know, as some people have tried to say, all the themes of the film about how toxic masculinity is taking over have been completely ignored here. It's like, it's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the fact that there's so many good films for them to pick from, so many great directors, so many great stars. They've had to single it down. Yeah. And I, I think that everyone who's in the main categories deserve it. Best actor, Bradley Cooper. Coleman Domingo for Rustin, Paul Giamatti for Holdovers. I mean, Giamatti, I'd love him to win it. Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer and Jeffrey Wright, American Fiction. I do think it's Killian Murphy getting that one, but I would love Giamatti to get it. And the supports, you know, you've got Emily Blunt for Oppenheimer, Daniel Brooks for Colour Purple, American Ferrara for uh, Barbie, Jodie Foster for Nyad, Devine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers. And in the actors, Sterling K. Brown, American Fiction, Robert De Niro, Killers of the Flower Moon, Robert Downey Jr., Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling for Barbie, and Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things. Gerwig does get a mention in the best writing, 
Yep, and so she should. Started starting from the writing stage of Barbie is what helped make it the absolute work of art that it was on screen. I've got no problems with any of the categories except for trying to find half of these films at this point in time. <laughs> but I've done I've done well for ticking them off. There's only two out of the best picture wow. that I'm yet to see, and both of them come out next week in the UK. So busy week for Andy ahead. I wasn't surprised with any of the announcements for the Oscars, but I was I was pleased with a lot of the announcements for the Oscars. And I'm looking forward to the big night and seeing who actually wins. And that big night is on Sunday, the 10th of March. And it's a late one for Andy. Uh, but before we go, Andy? we've It's sad news time. After we've had a few weeks without any ha- sad news to round off the news, this week the news came in that legendary filmmaker Norman Jewison has passed away, reportedly died peacefully on Saturday, age 97. This is a director whose work and career spanned more than four decades and seven Oscar nominations. In particular, Best Picture winner in The Heat of the Night, Best Picture nominees at Fiddler on the Roof, Moonstruck, A Soldier's Story, and The Russians Are Coming. When it comes to talking about legendary directors, then Jewison is one of those legendary directors. He worked across all kinds of medium, as we said, Fiddler on the Roof, a musical, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, he did Moonstruck uh, with Cher, Rollerball uh, with James Kahn, one of my all-time favourite movies, The Thomas Crown Affair. He could mm. turn his hands to every kind of film and deliver it with always with a strong message. He addressed topical, social, political issues, often making controversial uh, and, and complicated subject matters like The Hurricane. But he made fantastic looking films and at least one of them should be on everybody's favorite film list because he was a a uniquely talented director and will be very, very sadly missed. Fiddler on the Roof, as we discussed on a previous show, is one of my favorite musicals of all time. I absolutely adore that film. Watched it when I was young and stuck with it ever since. But there's so much of his work. I mean, I'm with you that on the Thomas Crown Affair, that's an immensely rewatchable film. Marvellous director, marvellous creator, and also produced films such as The January Man, The Landlord, and The Dogs of War. Uh, He won the prestigious Irving G. Thalberg Award at the Academy Awards in 1999 and has won three Emmy Awards for his TV work. Jewison is survived by his wife, Lynn St. David, and his three children and five grandchildren. And our heartfelt condolences go out to everyone who knew, worked, or was related to him. And that, folks, that's the news. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do so by heading over to your favorite podcast platform, leaving a like, and remember to hit that subscription button. You can get in touch with us by social media channels, Film File UK. We're mostly prominent on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, and Blue Sky. Or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. Love to hear from you. Love to hear thoughts on film. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. Over the course of the Deep Dives, I've presented Andy with films that I love. And Andy's some, sometimes quite mystified. I'm looking at Buckaroo Banzai, Andy, when I'm talking. <laughs> I'm thinking about Christmas Story. But now, tables have been turned. Andy is bringing to the table one of his favourites. It's the 1977 American action comedy, Smokey and the Bandit. At last, a warm, sensitive, touching story about the close personal relationship between a man and a woman. 
between a trucker oh. and his dog. Fred, I'm so damn tired of picking you up. I got to Fred. Between a father no way. and his son. No way that you could come from my loins. And how they all took to the road one day for a quiet little drive in the country. From Georgia to Texas and back in 28 hours flat with a truckload of bootleg beer. I'll be driving this one. Hey, uh, blocker, blocker. You'll be driving the truck. This is Bandit 1, and that is uh, Bandit 2. <laughs> now, who would do a thing like that? <laughs> be crazy, you know that? Yeah, you know that. <laughs> yes. Okay, how much money did you say it was? $8,000. Universal presents Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, Jerry Reed, and Fred. We're going to really have to cook. I mean, put it on the back burner and let's cook. Is that a 10-4? 10-4. And the only thing that stands between them and an $80,000 prize, Jackie Gleason as Sheriff Buford T. Justice. The film stars Addie's height, the ever-charming Burt Reynolds, screen companion Sally Field, the great Jackie Gleason, Jerry Reed, Pat McCormick, one of my favorite musicians and songwriters of all time, Paul Williams, and this film is the first installment of what was known as the Smokey and the Bandit trilogy. Also spawned rip-offs, uh, look-alikes, TV series. This is one of those films that, at the height of the CB craze, captured an audience. It was the directorial debut of stuntman Hal Needham, and the film follows Bo Bandit DeVille, played by Reynolds, Cletus Snowman Snow, Jerry Reed, two bootleggers attempting to illegally transport 400 cases of Coors beer Texacana, from Texacana to Atlanta. While the snowman drives a truck carrying the beer, the bandit drives a 1977 Pontiac Trans Am, a beautiful piece of car, to distract law enforcement officers and keeping the attention off the snowman. During their run, they are pursued by the Texas County Sheriff, and what a name, Buford T. Justice, played with much aplomb by Jackie Gleason. And Andy, you love this film. It was the second highest grossing domestic film of 1977. I adore this film. I got it bought for me on UHD 4K for Christmas and revisiting it was an absolute treat. And after I revisited it, I sent a message to Lee saying this is becoming a deep dive in early January. So get, get ready for it. This is my revenge on him because Lee's not got the love for it that I've got. What is it about this film that I love? Well, I was an early age when it came out and I didn't get to see it at the cinema. I got to see it on home release on VHS and it was one of the early VHSs that we rented out and it was just a joy. Burt Reynolds, I think, sums it up perfectly because he said in one of the extras on the Blu-ray and DVD that he classes it as a rainy Saturday afternoon movie. It's like Chinese food. About an hour after you see the movie, you might want to see another one. And I completely get that because it's just one of those simple pleasures. It was like the rainy Saturday afternoons that we used to watch it. All through my childhood, we'd go back to this so frequently. And it all hinges on the chemistry between all the cast. Now, bit of background on this. Hal Needham was the king of stunts. He was known for a lot of stunt work over films through the late 60s into the 70s. But he wanted to make his own film. And he built up a friendship with Burt Reynolds over the years. The story goes that Hal was going through a divorce and needed somewhere to crash. And Reynolds went, well, I've got a spare room. You can crash here. And he ended up living with him for 12 years as a result. He never moved out for 12 years. But during that time, they built up such a good, strong friendship 
and worked together lots and lots of times. This wasn't their only film together. No. But it was when Hal wanted to make his first film and he just had this idea of just doing this road movie with loads of stunts and everything, because that's where he came from. He didn't have a full script, but he did have notes on real scraps of paper that he showed to Bert. And Reynolds basically said it was the worst script that he'd ever seen, but he would do it. He basically said, we can make up the dialogue and go with it on set and work things out as it plays through. And you get that feeling when you're watching it that a lot of it is just all the stars in it just riffing on what they can think of at the time, and it works to the benefit of this film. That's right. Most of the dialogue on the movie was improvised on set. And if you ever see the outtakes, which, of course, one of these, <laughs> uh, one of Needham's tricks was <laughs> outtakes at the end of, of, uh, yes. of his movies, you can tell that these guys are having a whale of a time. When it came to the casting, Initially, when Needham wants, wanted to make this film, he pitched it with Jerry Reed as the bandit. That's right. He only wanted about a million in order to make it, but he found studios very, very reluctant to actually even do the low budget of $1 million and take a risk with this until Reynolds came on board with a, with a fee of $1 million just for himself. And all of a sudden, a studio went, well, if, if Bert's going to be on it, because Bert was on a streak at this point in time. He was a huge name. And so having his name attached instantly greenlit the film and they upped the budget to $3.5 million. Yeah, I mean, initially, Universal, who bankrolled the, the movie, uh, we're going to spend $5.3 million on it, figuring it's a good risk. It's got Bert Reynolds in it. But just two days before production was to begin, Universal sent in a hatchet man uh, to inform Needham that the budget had to be trimmed by a million dollars. And with the salary, as Andy said, of Reynolds at, uh, at one million, he was only left with just enough. So uh, they spent 30 hours revising the shooting schedule to make it work. When it came to the rest of the casting, the casting of Sally Field as um, the runaway bride character, um, who he nicknames Frog, the studio kind of balked at the idea of Sally Field because she wasn't considered sexy enough. Uh, but Reynolds' champion said, she's talented, she's funny, that's sexy. She's the perfect cast. And you look at the chemistry between the pair of them together. The pair of them were an item during this film. They clicked so well on set that they became an item. And you can tell there's an absolute chemistry that really plays well. And Sally Field is amazingly gorgeous. She is charmingly sweet and, oh boy, she was an early crush, a definite early crush for me. She's still a crush today. <laughs> and, and so full of charm that she could play against Mr. Charm himself, Burt Reynolds, and keep up scene for scene and, uh, and, and at times, for me, steal the movie. One of the absolute coups for casting was Jackie Gleason as Sheriff Buford T. Justice. Jackie Gleason was well known for comedy roles on TV and in films right up until there. So scoring a name like that, how did they manage to do it? Well, basically, Hal Needham phoned him up and just went, I'd really like you to do this because I love all your work and I think you'll be really funny in it. And he was just so flattered. He went, yeah, go on, man. I'll do that. And once he found out that he could, he could improvise and he could riff on things, Gleason had fun. Some of the best lines in that, we're not scripted at all. There's the grace, like, there's no way, no way you can come from my loins. 
As soon as I come home, I'm going to punch your mama in the mouth. And that was pure Gleason. Gleason also suggested that the son who the runaway bride had ran away from stays with him in the car throughout it. So Junior is always there alongside Gleason's justice. And it gives that real like father-son relationship that the father is just absolutely hating the fact that this is their son because the son is so dumb and that helps it. All of the things that make this film work are all stuff that weren't in the script because let's be honest, Hal Needham as a script writer uh, coming up with an idea, he was coming at it from a stuntman's perspective and he had ideas of what he'd like to see rather than how you'd get there. And you saw this with later Needham films that they are very chaotic, but it's the riffing that he allows his cast to do on set that brings the joy. And for me, it all brings the joy. And as a kid, it wasn't just the, the the witty dialogue, but it was that car. Let's be honest. Any young boy who watches a film with a Trans Am Pontiac looking like that, who doesn't suddenly in, instantly feel a thrill and want to be the bandit, there's something broken. I love that car. That car is an icon. So let's get down to the $85 million question. And... Do I like it as much as Andy loves it? I can see why Andy enjoys this movie. I can tell his love for it. I like it. I, I do like it. I, uh, it's not a film that I'd ever put on one of my favourite lists. I think I saw this in the cinema when I was a kid. I think. I And, and my memory is playing tricks. I have seen this and I saw the first sequel. Uh, so I must have seen the first sequel on television, but I do think I saw it uh, on the big screen. It's okay. It works on its on its charm, the charm of the, the characters and the actors riffing against each other, some great set pieces, uh, fantastic stunts. When I was a kid, fantastic stunts would make up for an awful lot of any film. You didn't have to worry about plot as long as, you know, you saw cars crashing in into each other. Mm. It's a bit empty-headed, but it knows it is. It, it doesn't make any apologies for being a film that is a one-idea narrative and just goes with it, with its foot firmly on the on the gas. I would never watch this again unless I had to watch it for a deep dive, but I'm happy that it exists in the universe. It's not my kind of film that I would, would say thoroughly enjoy, but it's got Reynolds in and it's got Jackie Gleason in and it's got Sally Fields in and it's got Paul Williams in and it's a good time. It's a good way of killing an hour and a half. It's one of those films that everyone was just at the peak of their game making it and all bring their own energy and style to it to lift it above what it otherwise was going to be. Uh, Jerry Reed as Cletus also provided the theme song Eastbound and Down, which is iconic and perfect. Apparently he wrote it overnight, came in the next day, went, I've kind of put this together, but if you want me to change it, and they listened to it, went, oh, I'm not sure. And he was like, oh, I'll go and change it. It was like, no, 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 we're joking with you. This is brilliant. And it is, it's a great tune. Even though you could say the films such as the 1975 Moonrunners could have been seen as the start of the bootlegging and CB kind of trend, Smoking the Bandit was certainly the one that propelled the idea of these kind of films to a wider audience. And we saw a wave of trucking films and TV shows following me, like Con Convoy in 1978. Uh, TV shows, I believe you mentioned to me, BK uh, BJ and the Bear. Yeah, Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard. 
a whole like up until the early 80s you could look everywhere and all of a sudden cb language was getting spoken on every tv show every film it was all this like really cool like oh you need to be in the secret club to understand what they're talking about when they say 10 for good buddy we got a smoky on our tail it also spawned imitators uh, and basically what were the asylum studios of those <laughs> days were churning out absolute garbage to riff on the idea. I remember I've got a tale from going the video VHS store because you used to go into the VHS store and just have to rely on what the cover images were. And I pointed at a film, went, oh, that one. And we watched Smokey Bites the Dust in 1981. And that had nothing to do with this film <laughs> franchise, but it was sold as though it was part of it. And it was garbage. For Smoking the Bandit itself, not only did it get two sequels, the second one with Burt Reynolds in, the third one finally saw Jerry Reed play the Bandit, which was the initial plan, wasn't as good. It was declining in quality as it went along. Stunts were still great, but clearly Hal Needham can't write. There were four made-for-TV spin-offs, uh, Bandit Goes Country, Bandit, Bandit, Beauty and the Bandit, and Bandit Silver Angels. Uh, they were produced in 1994 with Brian Bloom, playing a younger version of the bandit. In October 2020, a new TV series was revealed to be in development with a pilot that's been written by David Gordon Green and Brian Sides, uh, being executive produced with his Rough House Pictures confederates, Jody Hill, Danny McBride and Brandon James. Um, Seth MacFarlane is also apparently attached. I could see it working now as a TV series. I, I, I don't think there's yeah. an, an audience for this kind of film, especially when we think of the American Deep South and, and some of the problems that that would bring to a modern audience. But I'm always open for a good car chase movie. I do, I do like the little anecdote that Burt Reynolds has said that um, in the Deep South, he's met people who've said that they consider Smoking the Bandit is a documentary. <laughs> and, and I think that perfectly rounds off this whole section on one of my beloved treasures from my childhood that I still love today. Smoking the Bandit is an absolute joy if you just switch your brain off and just watch watch some entertainers at the top of their game just riffing on an idea. And if we want to find Smoking the Bandit, where can we find it? Uh, sadly, it's not available for free on any services at this point in time, but you can rent it from about £2.50 on most major services. Or just treat yourself to the UHD 4K like I've got because the polished cleaned up version of it is such a good restoration and it allows you to really enjoy the spectacle of the stunts in full detail we'll be back with another deep dive and now it's time for this week's reviews three to talk about and we're going to start with because it's incredibly cinematic and that's the latest offering from apple plus tv and this is steven spielberg and tom hanks spiritual follow-up to band of brothers and the pacific masters of the air we came from every corner of the country with a common purpose to bring the war to hitler's doorstep we need complete and total air superiority that's the mission what? you might be the last pretty face i ever see the things these people are capable of they got it coming Suicide. 
we'd never seen anything quite like 2001's Band of Brothers, HBO's brilliant adaptation of Stephen Ambrose's nonfiction World War II account, which at the time was one of the biggest budgeted TV shows ever. And its scale and its sense of epic and its sense of heartbreak, I think will always be remembered by those people who had the opportunity to watch it first time around. Now in an age when we've got Game of Thrones and we've got these huge budget TV series, we wouldn't have them without Band of Brothers. And it's great to see Spielberg and Hanks teaming up again, this time to tell another aspect of World War II from a completely different perspective, this time from the sky. It's similar in arc and quality to the two earlier shows, Brothers and the Pacific, uh, linked by a voiceover, Anthony Boyle as the likable navigator, Major Harry Crosby, guiding us through the 100th Bond Group of the US Air Force who have to fly into occupied Europe on strategic missions. And spoilers, we do know that not everyone is going to make it back alive. I thoroughly enjoyed episode one. I have a thing for this kind of, um, not this kind of storytelling, but stories based around airmen like Memphis Bell, for instance. Mm. I think it's a beautifully done, beautifully adapted series. And as it should be with all the money that Apple can throw at it and the touch of Spielberg to it and Hanks uh, in the same way that they did with, with, with Band of Brothers. At the moment, I'm only one episode in, I think you're two episodes in. Yeah. It feels as though it's just getting started. I'm just starting to recognize the characters. Nothing's hit me yet in the same way emotionally as Band of Brothers did. But the chemistry between Austin Butler, who is just one of those actors who just shines with charm, as Gail Book Cleaven and Callum Turner's John Buck Egan, uh, central to that story, it brings an element of Air Force cool to it, uh, and it, with his matinee screen idol looks. But it also feels that's going to be so far the heart of the series. Yeah, uh, like you, I've always had a fascination with like the the air uh, aspect of warfare. As a kid, I used to love and obsess over you know the the planes that were used during World War Two, from like the Hurricanes and the Spitfires too. And you see it in this one of my favourite wartime planes of all time, the B seventeen Flying Fortress, which is a huge focus of this because that was the bombing plane i love like films that let you get inside those cockpits and get to see a perspective of the people who fought and flew in those kind of like situations and this is what this is kind of what i've been waiting for ever since band of brothers came out band of brothers just hit a zeitgeist. we'd never seen that kind of scale on the small screen before we'd never seen such cinematography used on tv in such a marvelous unique way and whilst the pacific was just as good it lacked that impact because we'd already seen it before and to some degree you could say that this lacks that impact because we've seen it done before however for me I'm completely in with this because this is now finally tapping into the aspect of war that has always fascinated me. The aerial attacks, the bombing raids, the plans, the the threats. Because you always think like, you know, the pilots like just fly over and bomb and then fly off. Getting to see this 100th bomb group were now nicknamed the Bloody 100th because they su suffered heavy losses through its combat missions. And that's because the American air raids were done during daytime so they could get precision bombing so they could line things up and get line of sight whereas the british d 
did bombing raids overnight where it was just like scatter over an area and cause as much decimation as possible. That is kind of like approached in this and it allows you to analyse like the different aspects of war and the different ways that different sides worked and the risks that they were taking. Every mission that they went on, they set off knowing that they might not be coming back. And it's brutal at times. It's heartfelt at times. It's darkly funny at moments. Episode two, when you get to it, is when it all starts to come together beautifully because the focus is on one of the bombing raids and you are in the planes with them and you're seeing how they operate. It's well cast, as you'd expect from this kind of production. You've mentioned Butler and Turner, but you've also got Barry Keoghan in yes. there as uh, Lieutenant Curtis Biddick. And once again, showing everything that Barry Keoghan can do. This is just an absolute star-packed casting and it's beautiful. The look of the film is absolutely beautiful. It's a it's a massive canvas that they painted on it, and it, you need the biggest TV to watch it. I wouldn't be amiss watching this in the cinema. I watched yeah. this with the kiddo. I thought might be a little bit too young, and I spent a lot of time explaining that these were real people. These were ordinary men. Most of them never trained as pilot, fighting in machinery that was that was all, was new technology back then. And that moral simplicity of fighting fascism and fighting the worst elements of the world and people coming together, the, the utter bravery that we have to look back on with, with modern eyes and uh, applaud and salute because we live in a dangerous world. And to be able to do those things that those men did is chilling and, uh, and a reminder that without them, the world would be a very, very different place. Uh, so that is Master of the Air. You can find it on Apple. And we highly recommend it. Andy, what else have we got? Also sticking with TV, I'm going to move over to Paramount Plus, where a prequel series to the Ray Winston starring Sexy Beast movie from the early 2000s has landed. Go home, I need a quiet life. Only if you come with me. So tell me then... What's your full-time job? Me? I'm a thief. Please don't tell me you're trying to steal my heart. <laughs> we showed them! That's right! Old school! Smashing work! We're putting together a job. Big job. It's gonna bring the entire kingdom to its knees. Gonna need a few strong boys. Girls are the kind of blow everyone likes. Wants to be around. What about the other one? Don, he's a loyal dog. I don't think he's all there upstairs. Boy, where's my milkshake? Don, how long does it take to put milk and ice cream together? Don, it's not like I ordered something special like cherry or chocolate there. Eh? I can understand. Oh, but I'm talking vanilla here. Yeah? Vanilla! How is it? Mm. Set in the early 90s, the new Paramount Plus series Sexy Beast is a prequel to the film of the same name from 2000, which focused on Ray Winston's retired criminal gal, drawn back for one more job by an old acquaintance, Don, who was played by Ben Kingsley. This new prequel tale goes back to the origins of the complicated relationship between Gal and Don as they delve into the dark underworld of London's criminal world and begin working for crime boss Teddy Bass, who was portrayed by Ian McShane in the original film. The first three episodes landed all at once. The rest of the season was going to drop weekly. The new show was given a chance to get past the typically muddled introduction of the characters that most new shows have when there's only one episode to look at. And over the three episodes, you get into the meat of the story. What it delivers 
It's pretty formulaic gangland material as best friends Gal and Don are recruited by Terry and find their lives irreversibly changed with a feeling that seems to be a cross between lock stock and two smoking barrels mixed with a touch of Rise of the Foot Soldier. I get the feeling that had I not already been invested in these characters through my knowledge and love of the film, I'd have found very little to really care for as the tale sets about introducing names that we knew from the movie and new faces to join the mix. Was there a need for a prequel for these characters? Perhaps not. But the series does try to explore it anyway, presenting us with aspects such as the early encounters and the growing romance between Gal and Edie, and also showing Don's developing instability that led to the frighteningly intimidating character that we witnessed in the film. It does, however, all feel rather generic, but it does get lifted somewhat by the casting picks that portray both old characters that we know from the film and new ones that inhabit the criminal world around them. In the role of Gal, we have James McArdle, who inhabits Winston's character almost perfectly, to such a degree that it's quite easy to believe that the actor is a younger Winston. Stephen Moyer is on wonderfully menacing form as Terry, even if he does choose to make the role his own rather than emulate McShane. Emma Elliott doesn't quite get the snippy dialogue of Don delivered in that perfect manner that Kingsley did, but he certainly leans into the volatile unpredictability of the role well enough to get by. And as we get to explore the reasons for Don's instability, he does put a lot of emphasis and a lot of emotion into it. Around those core three, you've got Sarah Green, who impresses us enough as Dee Dee. Tasmin Grieg is always on fine form. And she plays Don's very controlling sister, Cecilia. And then Ralph Brown and Paul Kay put in some strong support turns. All in all, this is nothing particularly new, nor is it anything other than just passable. But when it does deliver with some brutal shocks and hits its pace, it just about works. A lot of what works is down to that central performance from McArdle, who holds the whole thing together enough to keep me interested in sticking around to see how the rest of the season plays out. If you like London crime dramas, it's definitely worth a watch. I'm, I'm not sure about this, about prequel series. Uh, and we, we've talked about some in our news. I, I, I just don't know. I, I like Sexy Beast. I don't know if it needs a, a prequel series. Our connection to Master of the Air is Steven Spielberg, because Steven Spielberg did the original big screen outing of this very famous novel, The Colour Purple. Now, just to point out, it's not one of my favourite Spielberg films. So I'm having a lot of problems getting interested in this particular version of The Colour Purple. Needless to say, it's a musical. Hey, sister, what you gonna do? Keep your head held high, just like Mom taught us. Even if we have to part, you and me, us have one heart. How come you don't have none? All I have is my sister. Get off my back! I know she's somewhere. It's time for you to see the world! Someday we're gonna meet again. Adapted from the stage musical, which itself was adapted from the book by Alice Walker, which was previously adapted in a more direct manner by Steven Spielberg in the 1990s, this film sadly suffers by having to strip away the story in order to make space to insert the musical elements, resulting in a film that gave me too little time with any of the moments to really care for anything that happens. The story is set over four decades telling the tale of two sisters who were raised in an abusive home, find their lives separated when Celie is married off to a local farmer and father of three called Albert Mr. Johnson, 
Nettie, the younger sister, is banished and leaves the small community, promising to write to Celie. Letters that Celie never gets as Mister keeps them from her as he abusively controls her life. Jazz singer Shrug Avery comes to town, strikes a friendship with Celie, changing Celie's life forever. The Colour Purple is a powerful story of looking for hope in hopeless situations. And it, the story covers themes of physical and sexual abuse, domestic servitude, and elements of class and race issues. With so many heavy topics, the book and Spielberg's film hits hard and is brutal and shocking at times as the life of Celia over the decades plays out. Sadly, due to the insertion of the musical numbers, which sometimes it has to be said, tonally feel awkwardly placed, the story is stripped back to the bare bones and the film rapidly moves through the decades without any actual sense of time passing. Another powerful moment will arrive only to swiftly move on and be forgotten, never allowing any of the awful situations to linger or settle as the film just simply makes way for another song and dance number. You could argue that the music is a way to represent the clutching onto hope and faith for the characters as they are presented with challenges, but this never really comes across well. All that said, the cast are great. And the music, even though it does feel out of place at times, is pretty good. And when coupled with some sumptuous cinematography, the film certainly looks and sounds good. But the sum of the parts is let down by it never really connecting. In fact, if I had no prior knowledge of the story from reading the book, I'd have found very little to convince me to care while watching this film. Which is a shame, because this is a powerful story. In the end, I felt that this adaptation maybe works better in a theatre environment on stage. But somewhere in translation to film, it's kind of lost its power. So that's this week's releases, albeit mostly television. Andy, what have we got that's coming up? Busy week at the cinemas this week. Oh, at last. There's Illumination's new animated output, Migration, which looks quite fun. Illumination do manage to tap the funny bones on their animated outings. Uh, we've also got action... Fun from Matthew Vaughan, Argyle, lands this week. And then two of the Oscar-nominated Best Pictures, Zone of Interest and American Fiction, both of them very high on my radar to watch. Over on Now TV and Sky, The Bricklayer. Aaron Eckhart is a bricklayer who has a secret past as a CIA operative. Haven't we seen this film done 400 times over this year? <laughs> yes, apparently so. Oh, and apparently they're just going to keep doing this sort of film. <laughs> He's called back into action when a rogue insurgent is blackmailing the CIA. Expect all the tropes that you can ever get. And Insidious the Red Door, the fifth instalment in the series, this time which was directed by Patrick Wilson, might be worth watching if you're a fan of the series. On Netflix, Orion and the Dark, Charlie Kaufman returns with a sweet animated adventure for all ages, with a tale of a boy whose worst fear, the dark, manifests itself and takes him on an unforgettable night journey. And I'm there for that. Kaufman's imagination yeah, in family that's, that's animation. Um, over on Amazon in the UK, we get adverts. Yes, get ready yes, for Scotland wow. on viewing on Amazon as we lucky folk who pay to subscribe get to also watch adverts on top of our subscriptions. Yay, thank you, Amazon. Just in time for them releasing Mr. and Mrs. Smith so we can have ad breaks when we're watching it. And I can't be more dis disappointed that an enjoyable show that I'm looking forward to is going to be broken up because of Amazon forcing adverts on us now. Over on Paramount+, Plus. If you didn't see it at the cinemas last year, TMNT Mutant Mayhem lands and also new film The Tiger's Apprentice also lands. So it's it's a solid week for quite a lot of things, but it's the cinema which I've got my focus on this week and we should have some good films to talk about next week. 
Welcome Back Cinema. That's it, folks. That's us for another week. Yet, before we go, let's tell you about our neat things. Stuff that we've watched, whether we've uh, played video games, whether we have had a great meal. We just want to tell you how neat it was. And the unique thing for this week is... Um, the neat thing for this week is a magazine that I've been reading for almost two decades now. Retro Gamer, which launched in March 2004, and it's rapidly approaching its 20th birthday. Now, I've been a reader since day one of this. I always relish a new issue drop. The magazine focuses on retro games and retro gaming and retro consoles. If you're a video game lover like I am, it's always been a great look back towards what led to our love. Obviously, when it started, the idea of retro was something very different than what it is now. As time progresses, things that seemed new at one point and now retro. When the magazine launched, anything that was before the PlayStation 1 was generally classed as retro. So there was lots of features on old computers such as the Commodore 64, ZX Spectrum, consoles such as the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive, etc, etc. Now, we are living in an era where the PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 3 are considered retro, and it won't be long before the PlayStation 4 joins those ranks. Which means that as the magazine keeps going, there's always new insights into games, developers, consoles, events, and also the homebrew market that springs up around the retro communities, keeping the machines alive with new software. Yes, you can still buy brand new games for old systems such as the ZX Spectrum and the Commodore 64 on glorious cassette and they review them every month. This monthly magazine is written by people who have a love for retro gaming themselves. And it's been mostly the same core team over the two decades with a few changing faces over time. But it always feels, when you're reading it, it's that kind of magazine that feels like you're sat talking with your friends about the things that they love. And going to any retro gaming events, you will no doubt bump into some of the people who contribute towards Retro Gamer. And when you get chatting to these people, you realize they are obsessive about video games as what you are. And they will stand and talk to you about playing Jet Set Willy until the early hours of the morning on the ZX Spectrum way back in the 80s until the cows come home. I love Retro Gamer. It's a great read every month. It's very insightful. It has really good interviews with coders and creators of all the old games and some modern new ones. And it's always, always something that as soon as it lands, I'm reading it that night. Great magazine. If you love video games as much as I do, Retro Gamer is well worth a check out. And my neat thing is last week I talked about uh, that I'm currently playing Batman Arkham Asylum, the remastered version, and I'm having such a great time. I'm going to stay in the world of Batman, in particularly Gotham. I am currently reading a 2003-2006 release, which is Gotham Central, which is a unique look at a different kind of law enforcement that goes on in that particular troubled city. Gotham Central is a police procedural series written by comic legends, Greg Rucker and Ed Brubaker, with brilliant pencils, which were initially by Michael Lark. And the story focuses on the Gotham City Police Department and what it's like to work in a city that A, has supervillains, and secondly, is the home of Batman. And it takes a very, very realistic approach to talking about law enforcement and detailing the lives of several different police officers as they walk the dark streets of Gotham City. So much so that it has more in common with series like 
Hill Street Blues, uh, The Wire, and Homicide, Life on the Streets. So this is a very, very gritty take about the different characters. And the story sort of shift between Gotham Police Force's day shift and the night shift. This is brilliant. This is pushing the barriers of what we know and how to play in the Batman universe. The fact that it feels realistic, the fact that the characters could easily be taken into a TV show and feel not out of place as a regular weekly crime procedural. Brilliantly written by two of the greats of this particular end of the genre. And this was Brubaker prior to he took over and reinvented Captain America. Absolute joy to read. If you want your comic books to be dirty, dark and realistic, but still play in the DC world. I can't recommend this enough. Uh, an absolutely fantastic series. You can pick them up as collected editions because the series only ran from 2003 to 2006, but well, well worth it. So it's the comic series that kind of inspired the Gotham TV series and looks like it's the inspiration for Matt Reeves's TV show that is in development because uh, apparently that Matt Reeves is also considering calling his TV spin-off Gotham Central itself. Yeah, the, the, the series Gotham could have been more like the book, and I think it it, it would have added a, a different layer to it. It would have made it grittier and dirtier, but I'm looking forward to the Matt Reeves version if they stick closely to these fantastic books. Uh, and that, folks, well, that's us done. Uh, we'll be back next week with more reviews, more deep dives, more news, basically just more. Yes, we will. Uh, I'll be continuing this week on checking out as many Oscar-nominated entries as I can. I'm doing well for ticking off this year. I found a load of the short films which have ploughed through over the past few days, and I've now got a fair few features to work through, but I'm on target that by the time it gets to March, I should have watched everything. Let's hope so. Uh, fingers crossed and sending your thoughts and prayers to be able to do that. <laughs> I just don't have the time. I don't know how you do it, Andy. You're, you're, I know you, you, you're you in uh, a regular time traveler, and I think that's the only way that I could do it is to have your time traveling skills. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Thank you as ever for joining us. When you tell somebody something, it depends on which part of the United States you're standing in as just to know how dumb you are. Thank you.